the marinade. There's no O in marinade. Let's try it one more time. Ready? One, <laughs> two, three. <laughs> the marinade. Marrow. Marrow. Marinade. Bone marinade. The marinade. The marinade. With Jason Earl. Faces lit up by their screens, play confined unknown. Pollen covered. Welcome to the Marinade with Jason Earl, a free flowing conversation about the creative process with creative people. This is episode 73, and our guest is Will Kimbrough. Will has lived an impressive and inspiring creative life. And his latest album, Spring Break, is evidence of that lifetime of experience. It's excellent. I highly recommend you give it a spin and then head to willkimbro.com to get your copy. Everyone, this was such a pleasure. It is my honor to present my conversation with singer, songwriter, producer, and now budding author, Will Kimbro. Three women way out on the ledge One shouted, what's the use? The king didn't cry to go away song The late great John Prine Blues A 50-year-old man can yep, hardly sleep Till half past four His daughter's up all night And his wife so sweetly softly snores Trying to get all this while the madman make the better. goddamn plans is yeah. mostly over the course before. of time is that better for you <laughs> yeah that's great okay. thanks I'm not thanks for jo- thanks for joining us on a uneventful tuesday <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uneventful indeed um no it's funny i when we scheduled this i didn't even think about the fact that it was election day and so i'm kind of excited that we've got something to talk about other than the election i'm sure it inevitably will will come in but it's kind of fun to have this little um, this little escape in, uh, you know, I want to start speaking of escapes, uh, with spring break, which is just wonderful. Thank new, you. New record, man. I, I love it. And, um, and so, it, you know, there's so much that's interesting about it to me. One is sort of the scope of it. I mean, it's, it's a, there's 14 songs on this record. It covers a lot of ground. Um, there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot, there's just a lot going on. And I wonder yeah. if you can kind of take us to, to, to what was going on when you wrote the record and and how you were feeling, if you can remember that time, even sure. though it was forever ago, it seems like now. Well, you know, it wasn't that long ago. And um, I'll say this. So I was having a really good 2020, like a lot of people. And I was on, I had, let's see, I started the year in the studio with Jimmy Buffett and the Coral Reefer Band and um, recording the album, playing on it, co-wrote four songs, just really great way to start the year. Flew right from there, from the studio in Key West to the 30A Songwriter Festival in Northwest Mm -hmm. Florida, and then played awesome gigs with Radney Foster and Grayson Capps and Randall Bramlett and Marshall Chapman and Tommy Womack. And then during my gig with Marshall and Tommy, I found out that my neighbor and of course one of my friends and songwriting heroes David Olney had passed away basically on stage and um so that was a that was the beginning of the year it was still January at that point and then my wife and I went to Australia I had several folk festivals booked and and then club gigs in between and some visiting friends in Australia and so the first weekend got canceled because of the brush fires and then we did the middle two and a half weeks and it was a great trip, great gigs, great festivals, uh, great, you know, Aussie stuff, Sydney, Melbourne, great ocean road, a lot of nature, koalas, you know, mm-hmm. and then, um, we got on the plane in Melbourne on, I believe it was March 13th, Friday the 13th. And, uh, to go to the blue mountains festival in, uh, just outside Sydney. And so we, we boarded the plane. It was about five o'clock in the morning. And then my phone just blew up with 
the whole spring was canceled. Um, so we looked at each other and said, well, let's fly to Sydney and see what happens. And so we ended up at the Qantas counter and went home. So then I came home to a shutdown world basically, you know, no work. And like, like everybody, again, I understand this is partly what everybody, but this is how the record started. So I started to record songs that I'd always wanted to record. And those include my sin is pride, rocket fuel. I want out Philadelphia, Mississippi trains, Cape Henry plow to the end of the row, home remedy work to do. And then just do acoustic guitar and vocal versions of these songs, some of which I wrote with Todd Snyder, some of which I wrote with Adrian Young, um, a guy named David Zolo, who's from Iowa, um, Amy Loftus, who I'd worked with and written one of the songs. And then I had just, I wrote the rest of the songs, basically. And before I knew it, I really had like 15 songs, but then one of the songs was a cover and I decided not to put it on there. It just didn't really fit. So, I mean, within, uh, by, you know, the beginning of April, I had the whole record. So it was really fast. And I decided to put it out and, um, you know, now it's out. Uh, but, you know, like the um, late great John Prime Blues and my right wing friend, who, which are kind of emotional and, topical centerpieces of the record um those were written like on april 9th you know like the day after john prine passed you know basically like just in a i didn't have anything else to do but write and mm. record and even though i had some and and so anyway we're, we're working we're working in the house and um anyway so so that's what happened with the record i hope that that makes makes sense it does. Is is that for you? <laughs> Who's that? This is LB. Hi, LB. The Wonder Dog. Oh my goodness, we've got two pups um, that we're obsessed with. But um, yeah, the d does it happen often? I think when you, when I listen to the late great John Prime Blues and and that that hit us all of us so hard. You know, those of us who like this kind of music, or those of us who like music and storytelling. Anyway, anybody who listened to John at all or had any interaction with him, whether as a fan or as a colleague or whatever, that, that one was devastating and in so many ways. Are you able to write typically in those moments? Like when something like that happens, especially when we talk about, I mean, if you think about that timeline, like everything gets shut down, you know, COVID is this huge thing. You're in the brush fires are shutting things down. We lose John Prine and then you're able to write that quickly. Are, are you able to write like that normally or was there something something else happening there that you were able to make that happen i think i'm able to write like that normally um so and maybe i should take a little more time to process things but writing is processing things and my songs don't offer some answer to everything they just comment or or just describe a, a scene or tell a story. Some of the songs on this record really tell a story. Some of the songs paint a scene. The late, great John Prine Blues doesn't tell the story of the death of John Prine, mm. but it describes the atmosphere around the time in which he passed. And then, and then at the end of the song, exactly what he meant to me. Mm. So it describes the surreal surreality of April 2020 in Nashville in my neighborhood where I'm walking when I decided to break the news to my wife and daughter first of all I was taking a walk with my wife which is normal taking a walk with my 19 year old daughter I mean normally she, she would be like leave you know you guys go or or I'm going out with my friends or Number one, I'm away at college, but instead she was home taking a walk with us because she didn't have anything else to do. And I knew that John had died about halfway through this long walk, but I didn't want to spoil our walk because it was so nice. And my kids, you know, knew John, they knew his kids. And my wife knows John and Fiona, and it was going to be very sad, not to mention the fact that, we, that we're number one, huge 
fans, not only of the music, but just of the person and the people and the family. And um, so I knew what had happened. I'm walking on this walk, kind of like, la da 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 da. Yeah, look at, the, look at the moon. It's beautiful. Yeah. And I get home and say, well, John's passed away. So, and then they, you know, the end of the song, it's really just like a, a journal. You know, it's like the first verse is it's strange in Nashville. Our cars are covered with pollen. Nobody's going anywhere. Nobody's washing their cars. They're mm -hmm. just getting covered in this green dust. And mm -hmm. I'm walking. It's night. And then Nashville wakes up in the middle of the night because John Prine's died. Kind of the whole world does. And everybody wants to talk about what they remembered about John Prine and, and what his music meant to them. And what when they met him, how awesome and nice he was and how supportive he was. And I'd had all those experiences since the late 70s when I first saw him in 78 um, as a 13-year-old. And... Um, and then I was on, I was in a band on his label. And then we did a lot of gigs with him, with Emmy Lou, with Rodney, you know? And so anyway, and then the last part of the song just says, you know, greatness comes, but once inside a very long, long while. And in this case, the greatness was the man himself, you know, and I talk about him and I talk about his songs. So I think I'm, to answer the question, I'm, I think I'm able, I do this thing called songwriting with soldiers. And one of the things that's taught me is that if the job is to write a song, then go ahead and write the song. You can always edit it later. But I do believe if it's a song about a moment, then if you're in the moment, sometimes the song you write about the moment is the right song. And you can go back later and reflect on the times. Um, but when you're in the moment, there's only one way you ever feel. And, and, while you're still in it, sometimes it's good to write things down. It's like writing your morning pages, you know, the famous morning pages. Mm -hmm. um, and so these songs were sort of my morning pages of, of this time. Do you, do you practice morning pages regularly? I'm starting back. I used to, and I'm starting back. I'm trying to write this memoir book and, or maybe just a creative memoir of, of being a, someone who's, consistently written songs for like 40 years now uh -huh. and um i want to and i have some good you know shaggy dog stories of course over the right. years from all the people i've worked with but i'm trying to and also just to remember your, your my own life and sometimes even in uh, a musical life well especially maybe a traveling life and working with so many different people all the time because even when i've been with say Rodney Crowell for seven years or Todd Snyder for five years or Amy Lou for eight years in between every time I come home, I'm in the studio with somebody else. So I've had sort of an unusual career compared to some, some people, you know, that I've, that I've been a producer and a writer and a player and a band member and a solo artist for all these years. And it's, I, I love it. Can, can you talk? Yeah, that, I feel like that's gonna. Um, that's exciting that you're writing all this down. Can you talk a little more about that process, the the writing of the book process, maybe versus the songwriting or producing process? Um, like, did you have? Do you have mentors that you look to for that? Have you done that kind of work before? Like, what does that process look like for you? I've been a voracious reader my whole life. I grew up in a house full of books. You know, bookshelves up to the ceiling. Now I live in a house with merch up to the ceiling, but, um, but to <laughs> make money somehow. Right. And, um, but the, uh, so the, the written word is, is something I sort of idolize. I've been able to do music and been able to write songs. That's something that comes easier for me. <laughs> Excuse me. And so it's, it's intimidating for me having constant, I'm constantly reading great writers mm. And then to try to put it together, but I think I'm, I'm, what I'm, the process for me is, can kind of going over the timeline and starting over again, but keeping everything I've done to make myself have a, a really horrible editing job to do. But one thing I've done is um, I have a, a podcast via my Patreon, mm -hmm. and I've been reading sections of what might be the book, and then when I have to go back and edit and listen to myself speak. Um, that helps me a lot because um, there's, I don't want, I don't think that the language should be flowery. I remember I, I worked with when Rodney Crowell was writing his book, I was on the road with him the whole time. So every morning he'd go back in, in the, in the back of the bus and write for three hours every morning. 
and he'd let me read pieces or he let me read what his editor had corrected or scratched and stuff and 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 so and also oh lord <laughs> help me here he is come here come sit with me yeah we're obsessed with our dog too so here it comes. yeah mine will probably make an appearance they they're like co-hosts of the show yeah yeah so here he is Hey, buddy. <laughs> he's so cute. Yeah. He's really How old cute. is he? He's about a year old. He's just okay. a rescue dog. He's going to go bark some more, I'm sure. Yeah, we've got... There's a... I don't know if how you feel about it, but there's a, a company called Dog Rook, and they mm-hmm. make humane bark collars. It, mm-hmm. it beeps, mm-hmm. and then... Good idea. It, and then it beeps a second time, and then it vibrates if they do it a third time. It doesn't hurt them. Mm-hmm. In our, we have a little rescue... And she's a perfect dog, except she's just a little barky dog. Yeah. And it has yeah. almost fixed it completely. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Dog Rook is the name of the company. It's like $30 or something, too. Oh, cool. Great. Yeah. That's um, awesome. Okay. That's beautiful to know. And I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad I know that. Okay. So I love to read. I've been, re- you know, trying to read good writers my whole life. And so it's intimidating. Uh, but I do have just my, so I try to tell the story plainly and then maybe point out important milestones where maybe I moved, moved the chess piece forward uh, in terms of being a writer or being a creative person or being a producer. So I think at this point in my life, I've learned how to really enjoy the process of making a, a record, especially if it's like people playing together or one person playing and performing and trying to capture a performance rather than build a record brick by brick. Um, and I've done plenty of those kind of records too, especially back in the day, back in the eighties and early nineties where, you know, there'd be a lot of sort of building and replacing and, um, and then of course now we've got the digital, you know, computer digital world, not just the ADAT digital world of like the nineties and stuff where, where everything can be put on a grid and all that. And every, people talk about this a lot, but I really like to, so I, I like to, I like to record performances. Mm. That said, writing is not so much that. I mean, there is, you know, Jack Kerouac and the continuous ream of typing paper that he used for on the road or whatever. And that's cool. I'm not writing that. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember like 40 years of playing in bands and learning how to do this. And so I'm trying, I'm, I figure the only thing I can do is write the whole thing out and then take out the things that don't seem to matter anymore or don't Uh, seem to matter. They only, you know, that every little, you know, every little war story is not going to matter to the story. So I'll have to figure that out. That's going to take me a while. That's tough. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, you've had quite the career you live. You just mentioned all those folks you worked with and that's doesn't scratch the surface. I mean, the, the the opportunities you've had and the records you've made, um, so that's got to be difficult. I mean, it's a nice problem to have, I guess, to have had all these cool oh, experiences, yeah. you know, of but, but narrowing that down, um, you know, one thing I want to get into, like I, I saw your Patreon and we have a Patreon that I, I absolutely love Patreon. I think it's so yeah. wonderful. It's such a cool yeah. way to connect with fans. And it, it's, yeah. I mean, it, it allows me to do this, right? So it, it takes care of the overhead for this and allows it to be a hobby for me. And it, right. um, it's just such, it gives me so much joy. My our Patreon yeah. does, um, and I think that's so cool how you're approaching it. It's kind of making me think about you know ideas for mine. It's like reading parts of it, letting people in on the process mm-hmm. is uh, is really really cool. Are there some of the you mentioned moments where you move forward in your career or where you've taken sort of a step in your creative uh, life um, without giving them all away? Cause, so that folks do join the Patreon and buy the book later. What are what are some of the the maybe some of the the big ones in your life that where those moments where you've moved forward and and what led to them? Well, <clears throat> there's a meeting a, 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 when I was about 16. I met this guy who was like 22, and he had just moved to Mobile, Alabama, which is my mm-hmm. hometown. Mm-hmm. And he was looking for people to play music with. And I was in a band I had been in since I was 12, and we had been playing gigs and endlessly since I was 12 years old and so we were this band of friends from our neighborhood and from our school and um you know we had fun we won the talent show playing purple haze and all this stuff and um 
And then I met this guy named Richard Gallo and he had moved from Atlanta and he sort of just taught me that Atlanta had a scene and this is, so this is 1980. Atlanta had a scene and I guess back then they'd call it the punk or the new wave scene that bands played their own songs. And mm. I said, well, I've written some songs and, but we just don't play them because nobody wants to hear anything but, you know, Allman Brothers and the Stones and Leonard Skinner and ZZ Top, which is fine with me. It was All great. Right. But I had written some songs and so I played him my songs. <laughs> Brought to you by Dog, <laughs> Dog Rook. Dog Rook, yeah. <laughs> we got to get sponsored, man. So, I met Richard Gallo. He was from Atlanta. And he just told me people in Atlanta play their own music and there's these bands and they got record deals. And I thought, well, that sounds cool. People mm -hmm. want to hear, you know, people's songs. And yeah. so we started to play my songs. Now that band turned into, because of the times and where we lived and that, so that band turned into a working band. And so, and it was still the early eighties. And so we never did make a record. I was just listening to our demos on some warbly cassette the other day. And, but, but what that taught me was that it was possible. Mm. And then that same band, which was called ground zero, we opened for REM on the last date of their tour before they made their uh, murmur album. So it was uh, January, 1982. And we opened for them at the Sanger Theater in Mobile. My friend had booked them at the, for the college concert, but they could only play. It was January, so it wasn't, college wasn't in, but the, my friend talked the college into giving them the money to pay REM, $1,500, which was the most money they had ever made at that point. They had just That's been on the road opening for uh, Gang of Four, and they were about to go back in the studio with Mitch Easter and Don Dixon and make Murmur, which was their first record that would sell like 250,000 copies. And, send them on their way but anyway so we saw rem and i had already so i learned from richard you can write your own songs and people might want to hear them so we were playing our own songs uh and then i saw rem and i thought that they were going to somehow look different from me or be different from us and they had a crummy beat up van and peter buck had to borrow my amp because his was blown up and they had to they had to drive home that night because they needed to take all the money home to pay their rent and their bills for the next couple of months so that they could make their new album. And um, so from them, I learned that they look just like me. They have a crummy car, just like me, their amps break like mine and I can do this. It gave me permission to, so when I left ground zero and formed this band called Will and the Bushman, the first thing we did was, was made a record. We went to a studio in Louisiana, and made a seven song EP, which we can only afford to put out on cassette, but that was fine. Everybody had a cassette player in their car and every college radio station had a cassette deck. So we actually had a record that people played, although it was a cassette. And so that was another one, you know, and you go on and on and on from yeah. there, all the way up to where, um, you know, Jimmy Buffett records my song and I, I sort of get this adult validation of songs and, and that a check comes in the mail a year later and it, and it, you know, puts a roof on your house, or, you, know, mm -hmm. you know, pays for your children's orthodontia or something boring mm -hmm. and adult like that. But nevertheless, and all the things along the way, which I learned, I got, you know, we got a major label record deal. It didn't go anywhere. I learned a lot. I learned, learned a lot about what not to do. I mm -hmm. learned a lot about what I wanted to do, what I didn't want to do. And all that stuff just morphs over time. But the main thing you learn, or I learned, was to trust my feet, my gut. You know, mm -hmm. what I, what something really gave me the creeps. To not to think that I was obligated to do something just because somebody at a record company or a publisher told me that they liked what I do. And so when I was like 22, 23 years old, I thought, well, I should just do whatever they say and just do it and try to get in there, you know. And I don't know what else anybody has ever learned except for maybe having a great manager just sort of stand between them and the business. But now there's not really any business. There's just you and your music. Mm. And so that's why I'm writing the book because it's just going to be me and my book. And um, so there's a lot of things like that along the way. There's so many things like that along the way. And, and the thing, the, the farther along I get, the more it's just free. That mm -hmm. I'm free to do what I want. Mm. And I'm free to feel an urge to do something and trust it. 
And if I, you know, if I lose interest in a project, then it just stops. Mm. But the records that are out there and the projects that I've been part of are the fruit of the interest staying interesting. It sounds like there, and maybe this is just coming from years of experience and for your, from your, the successes you've had, but it sounds like there was a confidence in you early on. It, it, if, if not in the music, sounds like there was in the music too, but, but in, in at least like your ability to go for it, your, your willingness to take those, those, those are some risks that you're talking about too, all these things that you're right. taking along the line. So is is that accurate that that you sort of from an early age had this confidence to take those risks well music came easier for me than other things and perhaps that was because well i had a, a, a natural ear and the ability to learn how to play and, and and then i started writing songs and that all happened just naturally mm-hmm. and and so and then you learn sort of that how to get yourself booked at a club or get yourself book, get yourself a little tour booked. And then, um, and then you feel confident in that. And then you start to have, this is back in the eighties. You'd have like the labels come see you at CBGB or paradise in Boston or nine thirty club in DC. And, and that was very sort of swaggering. Yeah. Atlantic and Island are here tonight, you know, blah, blah, blah. But when you actually get signed, then, then you're dealing with a whole other world. And I was never comfortable with that world. And I never mm-hmm. felt like some kind of wheeler dealer business person. I still don't feel like that. I don't feel unconfident. I just know now to go, well, you know, I need to retain my publishing, whatever, you know, whatever yeah. basic business things you learn along the way to protect yourself. And um, so I never got far enough in sort of the big leagues of music to really learn how to deal now i just know as a, just sort of a, a middle-aged man how to just shake somebody's hand and say please and thank you mm. you know and, and return a call return an email return a text um, and so those lessons were more about what not to do although i, I went on and had you know distribution from our records and we did a record for john prine's label oh boy and um but ultimately in this day and age if you're not if you don't see the obvious real potential to reach a big, big, big audience, then you should probably just do your own records until you see something different happening. Mm. And a great example of that would be look at uh, Jason Isbell. You know, he's, he's his label. And Mm. why should, why should he not be? Right. So, um, why, now why, when you, let me ask you, here's the thing I don't know is when you, get a text message and you've turned off all your notifications and sounds that you still get the little ding on your computer. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I will never understand. I don't have an answer to that. Um, But, um, but so there's lots of lessons. And so for the, you know, the podcast listener to this, I started out in a garage band. We played skating rinks and bar mitzvahs. And then when I was 16, I started playing clubs and that band turned into more of a cover band because we could make a living doing it. And back in the early eighties, you had to own a PA and some lights and take it around everywhere with you. When I saw REM and open them and hung out with them for the, for the day, they were like, you guys have a PA. What do you have that for? You just show up and the club has the PA or the college has the PA, you know, so we learn and you need to put a record out, you know, you need, you guys have a record out. Why not? You know? Um, and so all that got just drilled into my brain by my heroes for that day, you know, 1982, early 1982, bigger than life guys I'd been listening to every day on my turntable, you know? So, so I made sure to follow that. And so the one thing that I actually followed through on an early age and didn't procrastinate about was Will and the Bushman made a record. And then we, so, and that was the seven song EP. And then we made a 45, and those things just made their way into the world because at that time, like a college kid was just excited about live music. That was what they had. They didn't have DJs and they didn't have hip hop and they didn't have the internet. You know, they just had Wednesday night, you know, Will and the Bushman, Thursday night, Sonic Youth, Friday night, you know, Johnny and the Hurricanes or whatever. But so, so it was a, it was a, a blessing to be part of that time well for one thing i can't undo it i can't not be born in 1964 and have 
graduated from high school in 1982 and been already in a band that was already working. So I followed that path. And then the Bushman got a deal. You know, we moved to Nashville. We got a deal, a New, a New York pop record deal. And, and that was fun and eye-opening. I'll never forget being at a suite at the Hyatt Hotel at Times Square in 1989 and it was a big expensive party and i think it was for our band and all these label people were there everybody was just there drinking and partying on the on the label and there was a big giant stereo set up in there and i you know so this is 1989 so it's like big speakers and a receiver and or an integrated amp and and a cd player because that was the latest thing and we stuck in the latest cd or the first time exile on main street the rolling stones record came out on CD and we wanted to hear it. So we put it in and this A&R guy from a major label came up to us with a British accent and started asking us what this was. And we just started telling him it was this new band from England. And he, he had no clue. It was a like tumbling dice was playing. And you know, the guy didn't know it was the stones. And I thought, wow. this is the guy that's signing bands. Now sure. He might've been signing, you know, haircut 100 or, or Spandau ballet or whatever was happening at that time in pop music. But right. I'll never forget that. Like, okay, so these guys hold the keys to the kingdom. That doesn't mean that they necessarily know anything about music. Now, I met plenty of people who did. Yeah. But, but I, that was fascinating to me because I was so I was like twenty twenty three or something. So I was, you know, oh, you don't know who the Rolling Stones are and that their album they made in nineteen seventy two that most people consider, you know, right a great record right um, one of the all-time greats right <laughs> yeah so so uh, you know that, that's eye-opening and i guess that's anybody's you know this is that you know great expectations you know i'm going to go to new york and everybody's going to know more than me and it's like not necessarily and but and knowing more knowing less doesn't really have that much to do with your success in entertainment industry either mm. Mm. i mean there's plenty of like there's we live in a golden age of certain kinds of tv right mm -hmm. and then there's there's so much music that it's very hard for um for in most of it to rise to any kind of a cream of the crop but that's also been true all of this time you know and mm. there are people who there's a reason the replacements are legendary mm. you know because they were so great and they were so terrible you know mm. and that is the stuff of legend you know the the possibility of how great it, it could it, it was and could be and then the the possibility the probability of how bad it could be on, on a given night and people will actually flock to see that kind of stuff. So interesting. And I do too. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, and so much other stuff from that era. So, and then you go on through time. So I'm in this band, we get signed. It's, it's a big disappointment for that young person who, who swaggered through the clubs and got a deal and then comes out on the other side, maybe, 26 years old but feeling like you're you've utterly failed and your life is over and that mm. was 30 30 years ago now so um so i you know did other things i had a, another band we signed with oh boy records ryan's label we made a record we were the big local band for a minute there in early 90s in nashville and then i realized i'd been in like a democratic four-piece rock combo since i was 12 and i was 30 and I decided I can't do this anymore. I need to like just do my own stuff and not have to get permission from the whole band to do a new song or, mm. and even it was a great band, but, um, and so I went solo and then that was about a year of my life where I like wrote songs and recorded them on my four track cassette. And then Todd Snyder called me in uh, late 94 and needed a guitar player. And I'd met Todd and I heard his first record. And I thought, well, yeah, this is great. I could do this. It's Eddie Shaver and Doug Lancio playing on here. I can do all this twangy stuff and open tuning Keith Richards stuff and slide stuff. I've been studying this stuff my whole life. So then I, next thing I know, I'm Todd Snyder's guitar player. Wow. And then it's 98 and he gets dropped by MCA and the tour support goes away and the band goes home just in, in, one day, you know, one night the we're in Atlanta, the next night I'm home and I'm out of, out of a job. And I, by that point I've got a three-year-old child and the wife at home. And so I 
immediately start looking for other work. You know, 2000, I started working with Rodney Crowell. And, uh, and, and meanwhile, I made, made records of my own and did tours of my own. So the, I'd be working with Rodney and I'd make a record and I'd maybe open for him or do tours of my own. And then I started working with Emmy Lou, work with her, do tours of my own, make a record. Um, and then, uh, in 2003, Jimmy Buffett recorded a song and the record sold a million and a half copies. And because nobody in Nashville wanted what I did, like by that point, it was, you know, mod modern hot country. And I don't really write that kind of music. I've tried right. a few times, but, and so I owned all the publishing because I hadn't had a publisher in years and that was great. So when the money came in, it all came to me. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so then I was sort of validated as this songwriter guy who got in a cut by a big person big artist and main thing it did for me was it just allowed me a little bit more freedom to do my own stuff but yet I kept like when Emmy Lou hired me I, I was like well I gotta go play with Emmy Lou right of course yeah even though I was I, I, I don't by that point I'd made you know 10 records or something but I went and played with Emmy Lou and I still do um and along the way I became a producer and um after I did like one or two solo records. Todd Snyder asked me to produce a record called East Nashville Skyline, which is a really good record. So good. Yeah. And I mean, that, that was just me being called for that record. And I did agree with Todd's vision and didn't try to push him in any other way. And I didn't roll my eyes at any of his, his uh, sort of references that we were working. You know, if he would tell us a, a sonic reference, I think he had experienced in the past that some producers and engineers would not like the idea of what he wanted to sound like. And they'd, they'd sort of ignore it. And I didn't, I, I, I would, I would know if he was talking about Jerry Jeff Walker in a certain era, I would kind of know what he was talking about. And if I didn't, I would find out because I wanted it to be, I wanted the record to be as close to what he had in his mind as it could be. And I, and I think we, we, we were able to get that. And Is that, so that was a great experience. Yeah. I'm curious. I, I, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about mm -hmm. because I, I just think Todd's one of the greats and, yeah. um, but he's also, you know, he's a, he's an enigmatic kind of character from the outside. Like I don't, I've never met Todd. I'd love to love to get a chance to meet him and have him on the show, but, but he's a wild man, you know, in, in, by reputation. And he's this amazing songwriter. He is, one of the most incredible performers i mean part stand-up comedian part you know part storyteller part song singer and player yeah. and like he's just amazing he's a force of nature and so i wonder like when you're when he's got all these ideas is it is it were you guys in sync in some other way or was it just because you just had the knowledge and you had the chops and you and you've done the work we've been on the road for you know five years before that and so we and we and I had worked on his record since then. I worked on when he was. I worked on "Happy to Be Here" mm -hmm. and the following record before that. Um, so he had kept me in the picture, mm -hmm. and I had said yes, I'll show up for whatever you want to do. And so when he decided to do East Nashville Skyline, he had a studio in mind and a sound in mind, and he had those songs. And so it really was pretty easy, although it was never, it was very informal. And I think that was very, um, that was on purpose by Todd. So I went along, I didn't try to push what well, needs to be 10 to six Monday through Friday. And then we take the weekend off. It was, if he wanted to work, I would put together a band and, uh, and if he had a certain idea, we, we would put together a group of people that we would sort of curate the band, but on the spot, I mean, just get on the phone and start calling people. And, um, and, but he wanted that. He didn't want, you know, he wanted the planning to be in his mind and then hit people with the idea and then record it. And, and sometimes we'd have to do that a few times we'd have to do that two or three times to get it to where he wanted it to be. But I was, yeah, I was just the person who could usually knew his references. We rode around in the van on the tour bus for 
four and a half, five years. And all we did was listen to music and talk about music all that time. So, you know, and we were on the road all the time. So we did a lot of that. We, um, and I have an open mind, you know, maybe not about everything and maybe me saying that I'm full of shit, but, but I think that I do, um, I think I have an, an open mind about what kind of music he wanted to do. So that anyway, he, um, he could, he could trust me not to secretly scoff at his idea. Mm. Um, I, you mentioned Isbel earlier and I, I wanted to talk about the work that you did with him recently, um, with Shamika mm-hmm. Copeland's, yeah. uh, record. Um, just really powerful story, you know, that the, that one, that song that he's on and yeah. uh, what is it? Cl- Clotilda's on fire. It's about yeah. the, the last, uh, ship to bring in enslaved Africans to America in 1859, 1860. And it's my hometown, Mobile, Alabama, where that happened. And they just found the wreckage of the boat, uh, last year. And so that was the impetus for the song I told, um, Shamika and, her lyric writer, John Hahn, because um, Shamika's not really a writer, but she's very like hands-on as far as like, you know, you guys wrote the song. Okay, let me look at it. You know, it's a good, yeah. it's a, it's an interesting re- relationship. It's really cool. Yeah. And then we brought in, and, and we were, we had gotten Jason to agree that he wanted to come play on the record. And so I knew I wanted to get him on Clotilda because it's such an, it's such an Alabama story, mm-hmm. and it's such an old story, and such a, but it's brand new because they found it they found it they found the ship and um a story like that you know i love how you mentioned it. it's it's such an alabama story because i think you know if you one of the things that we talk about on the show a lot is sort of that you know as the truckers call it the duality of the southern thing and and sort of the um the progressive movements in the south but but still reckoning with so many things from the past and so when when you're approaching a song like that um as a white guy you know who grew up in in mobile like i think for me when i approach work like that there's always like in the back of my mind a self-consciousness um that i almost feel like wait is this my story to tell do i have something to add to it um was that ever in the equation for you because it it comes out beautifully but i just do wonder like is that something that you had to wrestle with at all well i had my album i put out in 2019 has a song on it about the last lynching in america the michael donald story from 1981 and so i think i'd already grappled with that when i put that out because i sing I sing his story and his voice from sort mm. of beyond the grave and I don't put any opinion about it. I just tell the story. Mm. 1981, I went out for some smokes. Then I headed home, Alabama, you know, rent, uh, picked up by some folks, took me to the woods. They beat me bloody. I begged them for my life, Alabama. Mm. Um, so I told the story factually and then I played it for Shamika and I asked her to sing, uh, the female voice on it, which I thought of as, as Michael's, it's like the ghost of Michael Donald speaking and then his mother singing an octave higher above him. And she heard it and she wanted to do it. So I thought, I guess that that passed the test for her. And that was enough for me. Mm. I thought the story needed to be told in song and just like Clotilda. And so when we started talking about that Clotilda, the, the slave ship story, um, it appealed to everybody mm. because it's not a song in that case, it's not a song of opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, I mean, it does say that, you know, it certainly doesn't say, no, I have no opinion about slavery. You know, it says, <laughs> you know, that it, it was a, it's a, a monstrous history and it's a past that's, but it also talks about the resilience of the people who came back to form the community of Africa town and, they're still there. I mean, they've, they've struggled with poverty and racism and just poverty. Mm. And, uh, and so, so we, the answer to the question is yes, I think about it, but we moved on past it because I knew Shamika wanted to sing the song and she wanted us to write it. That's beautiful. I love that. And I, and I think that's how I've been trying to approach things like that too. And projects like that is that, 
I had a, a, a mentor um, years ago from my day job. I, I work as a, a middle school teacher and um, he was kind of my, my, my coach basically, right. Mm-hmm. My instructional coach. And um, he's a black guy and, and I, I was teaching almost entirely black students. And um, so there were moments that I would, I would come, I would feel like, um, I feel almost like, uh, unworthy, right. Of, of being in that space, knowing that there were a lot of black role models who could have been there for my kids and could have, could have maybe brought a different experience. Right. And he's, he said to me, he's like, yeah, sure. That's true. But those folks aren't here right now. You are, um, you have something to say, you have something to add and you have a perspective coming from being a white guy growing up in these environments, mm-hmm. you have a perspective that could be valuable for your students. Um, don't shortchange yourself just because you didn't grow up exactly like they did. Uh, that doesn't mean you don't have something to say and it doesn't mean you, you can't be of help. And that really helped me think through those moments. Um, and so when I, anytime there is a, they don't happen very often now for me yet, but I, but I'm, yeah. I certainly seek them out. But whenever I have an opportunity to creatively work with someone on something heavy like that, I mean, some doesn't get a whole lot heavier than slavery. So well, you know, in it, those moments, I, right. I, I and try to feels, remember that. And it feels good to write about something rather than just, you know, what's going on in your, I mean, I've, I've written, I think the greatest songs probably, are probably love songs because that's the mm. that's the condition that we all live in we either have love or we don't and when we don't we're we're not happy mm. wow. and but but at the same time a song about clotilda could be what vacuum of love could create a situation where a rich man makes a drunken bet that he can bring Africans back when importation of slavery has been illegal for 50 years at that point. And, and then, you know, go actually do it. That kind of like, ah, you know, I don't know what you could compare that to, but I guess the only thing you can compare to is that, that he thought it would be a, a gas to bring some African people back and put them into slavery illegally right win a bet with his rich friend and so um but you know also with trying to have just tell that story is more told with some more emotion about it because i think shamika i mean she's the descendant of west africans who were brought here as slaves Mm -hmm. and so if she okayed that version then that's fine and we we talked about it a lot and went back and forth about it and i'm mm. a center you know a center the michael donald song too where I, I wasn't trying to have a point of view i was just trying to tell the story mm. and um so i think if you just tell the story then there's no there's nothing wrong with telling a story um right and anybody can have their point of view. Somebody could say, yeah, you're, no, you're wrong. You don't have the right to do that, but it, we did it. And so, yeah. so, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not, I'm not the, I'm a, I'm self-critical, but, and, and try to self-edit. But then again, you know, in this case, we, we, we had the idea for both of those songs for the song from Michael Donald's lynching and for the song for the Clotilda slave ship story and we went through it and i think it's it's a welcome story to our time to tell those because they're they're vital they're they're human stories of uh importance and 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 interest yeah oh for sure and it turned out beautifully um as well um this has been such a pleasure will i we always end on what what you're getting down on like what what art has you inspired right now what are you reading or listening or watching to or maybe a watching to watching or maybe a i don't know whatever it is that's got you fired up art wise we just watched my octopus teacher which is unbelievable i haven't seen it i keep hearing such great things you gotta see it i mean it's just so beautiful and um just beautiful in all ways visually story wise um and we started watching queen's gambit which is brilliant Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I've been reading Pat Barker's trilogy from the World War One, and I've had to kind of give it a rest lately. And so I started reading um, Rebecca Solnit's book of it's nonfiction, and it's about how people behave in um, in a disaster. Uh, and it's great. It's called A Paradise Built in Hell, and it's a big part of the book is about the earthquakes in 1906 earthquake and and fire in San Francisco. Huh. And uh, it's great. And, and uh, so I'm reading that and I'm, I've been listening to, um, I'm working on a lot of music all the time. So there's that. I went down the rabbit hole of this guitar player named Dennis Budimer, B-U-D-I-M-I-R. And he was one of the wrecking crew, you know, the mm. people that played on all those records for Phil Spector and out in LA. Mm-hmm. Glenn and Campbell so- and all of them. Yeah, Tommy Tedesco, Glenn Campbell, mm-hmm. Hal Blaine, Carol Kay, et cetera. You know, played on Pet Sounds and played on Birds mm-hmm. records, et cetera. Sonny and Cher, on and on and on. So I found out I was I was listening to a podcast and it's Bill Frizzell talking about something mm-hmm. and he just started talking about this Den- Dennis Budimer record. And so, of course, I immediately went and looked in my local record shops, couldn't find anything, went on Discogs and found all four of these records. He made four records in the 60s came out on this label here's the point they were recorded at home on like a reel-to-reel with these borrowed microphones and um and then their friend had a record cutting lathe in his garage i mean they're in la and they're pros but but it was it's a diy jazz record Uh, a couple of records uh jim keltner's the drummer who was you know became super famous and played on the traveling wilburys and all that stuff and tons of records but i'm down that rabbit hole and they just have, I'm going to hold on and I'll read you. Yeah. So these records have little notes on the back, like jazz records used to have these technical notes, but so these ones say like recorded February 2, 1964 in Los Angeles, California, our Mount, uh, Mount Washington studios on a concert tone 505 at 7.5 inches per second remastered from original tapes at 15 inches per second. Some informalities of the session include sudden volume changes, partly due to people wandering away from the microphones or getting too close to to them without noticing the engineer who was busy listening to the music. (laughs) The listener will note these changes if he is listening to them and not to the music. (laughs) Mastering by by Cecil Charles Spiller. He finally got his stereo rig. I mean, and there's every record has these notes that are just, I just, I bought them for that. Yeah. The the notes were just fantastic. Um, This is a variable fidelity recording, but it is entirely of a listenable fidelity and often pretty high fidelity. Actually, variability is explained in the liner notes. All material was recorded on a Concertone 505 using EV666 microphones. A dinky little crystal mic. That's why the drums are a bit, shall we say, resonant. (laughs) <laughs> Cecil Spiller remastered all selections at 15 inches per second and balanced up levels, cleaned up the sound and made fun of our recording. <laughs> I mean, they just go on and on, you know, there's, uh, I mean, it, I, I could just keep going and, and redo all of them, but, um, it's great. Except for one selection with Gary Peacock recorded on an Ampex 960 in October, 1961, all materials were taped in 1963 on a concertone 505. Some distortion breakup can be detected in the guitar sound of the earlier track due to overload on the original masters. Although sound here is largely of high fidelity album recorded conceived, blah, blah, blah. So it just goes on and on. That's great. I love that kind of stuff. I love records and, um, and my, uh, so just trying to read and listen to music. And, and you said this earlier, this is a great way to spend uh, a chunk of the, uh, of, of election day. Mm-hmm. And so uh, thank you for that. Thank you, Will. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you for being so open. And thank you for your record, Spring Break. It's beautiful. Yeah, and folks should you. check it out and check out your Patreon. I'm definitely going to check it out. And um, I'm inter- so interested in that podcast idea. And just thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. I yeah, really enjoyed too. it. Me too. Awesome. Thanks, Jason. All right, man. Take care. Thank you so much. Take care of those dogs. I will. Yeah, likewise. Dog Rook. (laughs) All right. Getting on it. All right. Bye-bye. By day we keep apart six feet. All night we closely watch. While in the dark our dead dogs bark and take it up a notch. 
Don't bother adding up the debt, son, don't you light that fuse And ain't nobody dancing to the late great John Prine blues Greatness comes but once inside of Will Kimbrough, y'all, thank you so much, Will Thank all of you for listening, thank you for your support of the show We appreciate you so much It has been a crazy year as we wind down on 2020, but... I'm reflecting a lot on how lucky we are. Um, If you're new to the show, check us out on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram, and we love interacting with folks over there on both of those channels. MarinadePodcast.com for all things The Marinade, including written pieces, our online store. There's some website-exclusive episodes from back in the day on there. Some of my concert photography, some photography from the great Jen Ross, our good friend. Um, so many wonderful things over there on marinadepodcast.com that we would love for you to check out. If you really like what we're doing, please consider joining our Patreon community where for just a few bucks a month, you can support the show. It's a, it's a chance to uh, dive a little bit deeper, to connect. We have Patreon happy hours where we all get together via Zoom and chat and chop it up and talk about art and just kind of generally bullshit, honestly, and have a drink or, or not. You don't have to if you don't want to. You can bring your whiskey, your weed, your wine, your water, uh, or nothing at all <laughs> if you just want to hang out. Um, it's a really fun way to connect with the show, and uh, I, it means a lot to me to be able to connect with fans, m- many of whom have become kind of friends, really, uh, is the best way to put it. Uh, this thing ha- really has connected people in a way I did not expect. So if you like that, like what we're doing that much, check us out over on patreon.com slash marinade podcast. We also have um, uh, a podcast called Jason's Journey, where I talk about the moments that uh, have shaped and continue to shape my creative life. I tell stories over there. Sometimes I'll have a, a special guest to, to talk about some things. So, yeah, check it out if you can swing it. If not, tell a friend about the show. That makes such a difference. Word of mouth is so huge for us. Uh, If you can uh, just take two seconds to rate us on your podcast app, that really makes a difference. Leave a rating if you're up for it. Uh, Thank you so much to folks who have done so. It makes a big difference for us, and it makes this thing viable. It makes us, it gives us a chance to continue to do it, and I will continue to do it as long as people are listening. Um, I'm just so grateful for this year. I mean, I, I'm lucky, right? I'm one of the one of the folks who not only didn't lose his job, but actually got a pretty significant promotion during this time uh, from from my day job. And then with the show, uh, the show was able to connect with people that I'm not sure we would have necessarily had before just for various reasons not because we don't aim high we certainly do and we've had some amazing guests um, in terms of notoriety is what all I'm speaking to here everybody who's been on the show is an amazing creative but there are you know some folks who have really big audiences people like Brian Fallon who may not have had the time because he was doing you know he might have been doing a bigger bigger show or might have been doing some kind of press um, uh, around a show that he was playing in town. And we were able to connect on Zoom all because of Twitter and the pandemic and just all the circumstances surrounding it. So weirdly, it's been a year of growth for the marinade. And I'm, I'm super grateful for that. And again, as I say, just about every time that that is a testament to you all and, and the things that you have done in spreading the word and continuing to to give me feedback on on how the show has impacted you. If you're listening right now and the show has done something for you, every time you share that, every time you tell me that on on social media, every time you send me a message privately, however you prefer to convey that message, y'all, I'm telling you, it makes a difference. It fires me up. I love doing this anyway, but when I get that, that makes me want to reach out, right? And um, so I think that's a good segue into the segment of the show, What I'm Getting Down On, where I talk about the art that is inspiring me at the moment. Um, I turned 40 since the last episode a couple weeks ago, and my good friend, the wonderful photographer Jen Ross, let me borrow a copy of Joni Mitchell's uh, 75th birthday tribute record. Maybe she was sending me some kind of message there about my age. I didn't really think about it like that till this moment. But um, that was she. She uh, g- gave me a couple of records as well that just knocked my socks off as gifts. But then she loaned me this this record, this tribute record, and it's just so. 
all of these heavyweights are on this tribute record, right? Chris Christopherson, Brandy Carlisle, James Taylor, Shaka Khan, um, Emmylou Harris. Like, there's all these incredible people and legends in, in, in popular music. But what really stands out is all of the songs are Joni Mitchell songs written by Joni Mitchell. And, of course, I've heard them, you know, I've heard them for many years. Uh, and they're... They're classics, but to hear them through the lens of these legends was eye-opening for me. And I think the, the thing that stood out was the strength of the songs and the reverence these legends have for Joni and her music, which isn't surprising, of course, in hindsight, but it's um, it's inspiring. I mean, she has written just some of the some of the best songs of the last fifty years, and. You know, when you go back and you listen to them through a different lens, it's, I, I almost wonder if I've been taking her for granted um, and, and that not that I don't love her and sing her praises, but it makes me go, oh, man, I should be doing more of this. I should be listening to more Joni Mitchell and, 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 and singing her praises more. Not that she needs my publicity, but it's still fun to to be. Uh, immersed in her songs in a different way and see them through the lens of these uh, these legends so uh, that's what I've been listening to pretty heavily and there's all kinds of other stuff too but I I want to get into a couple of things one is I've been struggling for something to read and the reason I've been struggling is I think um, I I haven't been having a hard time focus focusing on on the reading if you have been listening to the show this year you know that when the pandemic began, I had no problem writing, but reading was a struggle for me. Now I'm kind of on a roll. I'm reading fairly constantly. Um, and I read that the book, A Gentleman in Moscow, which I've mentioned on the show last time that I, I finished and I love. And since then, I've kind of been like, well, I want every book to be that good. right? Like I set this bar too high. So I've kind of been picking at novels and um, uh, that I've had on my shelf for a while that, you know, somebody gave me or I picked up at a, you know, a yard sale or a Goodwill or something uh, over the years and just nothing has landed. And then I uh, finally yesterday got David Joy's When These, Mountain, when These Mountains Burn, his newest book. I love David Joy um, and I'm so excited for this. And I picked it up today. Y'all, I just... I mean, 20 pages just went like that. It's, it's that kind of a book. He's so good. And um, especially if you like Southern literature, and I don't want to pigeonhole him by any means, but if you like Southern literature, uh, check out that book, When These Mountains Burn. Like I said, I haven't really gotten that far into it, but it just grabbed me immediately, just the richness of the characters and the language and how, how well he sets a scene. Um, but then I, I tell you all of that, and then I get to... The moment that um, that I really want to talk about, which is what I've been watching. Um, last night, I had this whole artistic, spiritual experience is the only way to put it. I had an unexpected day off today. So last night, my partner in life, Chris, and I got a bottle of wine, and I stayed up past my bedtime. Chris, if you don't know, is a visual artist. She's best known for her paintings, um, but she also does woodworking and has been recently making candles and uh, crazy stuff with plaster. Just She's just so inspiring and constantly creating something out of nothing. And it's, it's amazing to be able to, to witness what she does every day. Anyway, she made this mold of her hand and is creating a lamp out of it. So, and I hesitate to go too far into her process for fear of selling it short due to my own inadequacy with words. But last night she set up her, her art studio in the living room, in our living room. And um, the, the hand was finished and she painted it using a paint pouring technique that she uses. And it created this gorgeous marbled hand, right? Well, it, it takes a while to do that, right? It's, it's quite the process. And so while this was happening, I was watching My Octopus Teacher. Now, if you, like me, are late to the My Octopus Teacher party, I recommend fixing that oversight as soon as possible. The film is a, a documentary made by a South African filmmaker, it's, and it's... Uh, ostensibly about his relationship with this octopus but it's really a story about family and love and relationships so picture this scene 
I'm having a glass of wine. One rescue pup lounging on the couch to my right, the other on the couch to my left. My talented, hardworking, incredible partner creating this gorgeous art right in front of me while I watch an astonishing film whose core message is about relationships. Now, the picture I'm painting might sound like a bit of a brag as I say it that way, and and that might be fair criticism, but what I mean to say by its inclusion at the end of this episode, near the end of the year 2020, is that living in the moment of creation, being, being present when those subtle acts of magic are occurring, is a goal that is attainable for all of us in our own way. And if we're in the habit of both creating and living in those acts of creation, then the very real challenges of existence, which seem to loom as enormous mountains right now, will go from dangerous technical climbs up a sheer face to difficult yet fulfilling treks to the summit. I love y'all. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, go out and create something. Cheers, y'all.